Our gospel reading today comes from Matthew 22. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them this question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, by the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one was able to give him an answer. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. You all can have a seat. Good morning, church. So great to see um, you all this morning. Welcome to Christ the King. If maybe this uh, is your first Sunday uh, to be here with us, we're really thankful to be able to worship with you. My name is Ashley. I'm the priest and pastor here at Christ the King. And um, we are sort of about, I don't know, midway, no, here at the end, actually, of at least this part of our series, we've been going through, um, in the Anglican way, anyway, a kind of series uh, called Shaped by Scripture. We've been thinking together these last number of weeks about what it means to be shaped by the Scripture, because we have said, uh, at least those of you who are members have heard us say, that here at Christ the King, um, we are a three streams church, and you don't have to know what that means. Um, It's Uh, Though for those of us who call this place home, it um, actually does matter that you know uh, what it means. And so we've been thinking together about what does it mean to be shaped by the Scripture, led by the Spirit, strengthened by the sacraments? Um, How does it inform the way that we worship? Also, maybe more importantly, how does it inform um, our life with God, the way we are with one another outside of Sunday? So yes, it shapes the way that we are here, but hopefully more than that, yeah? Yeah. So we've been spending the month of October thinking together about that question. What does it mean to be shaped by Scripture? And then we're going to pivot in the month of November to think about what it means to be led by the Spirit, and then we'll spend Advent thinking together about Advent, but also what it means to be strengthened by sacraments. And so we've been in our time together on Sundays answering the question or thinking about Scripture through the lens of the lectionary, our special Anglican gift, as well as in other traditions. We don't choose what we're preaching on Sundays. That comes to us many, most often times anyway, um, by way of the lectionary. And so on Sundays, we're kind of answering the question in sermon form. And then on Wednesdays, we've been posting a midweek podcast, taking a little bit of a more practical Um, or academic approach to answering the question, which is what we'll do this week, uh, too. And this week, we're going to be looking um, together at the question, or thinking about, rather, what what does it mean to be shaped by the Scripture? Specifically, how do we read the Bible? So in weeks past, we've um, looked at questions like, what is it? What is the Bible? Why do we read it? Or why should we read it, even if we don't? And then today, how? How do we read the Bible? 
And as I was thinking uh, this week about uh, this sermon and being here together today to reflect on that question, I was struck by the fact that Tuesday is a very important day uh, to me because it's Halloween and I love Halloween unapologetically. I spent most of my childhood as a Baptist and now I embrace Halloween. Thank you very much. Um, for those of you who are Baptists and love Halloween, that's fine. But, you know, I've been to many, many fall festivals. I'll just tell you that much. <laughs> um, it is Halloween on Tuesday. It's also, anybody know? Another important Protestant holiday. Yes, All Saints Eve, but also Reformation Day. Somebody's a Presbyterian in here. I know it. Presbyterians among us know Tuesday is also Reformation Day. Martin Luther, supposed to have anyway, um, nailed his 95 theses to the door of All Saints Church on October 31st, 1517 to launch what would um, become, of course, uh, the Reformation of the Catholic Church, which would not only spread across the continent of Europe, making its way from Wittenberg into um, far-flung places like Britain, and England, and giving rise, of course, to the Church of England, and what uh, we now know as this Anglican tradition that we are a part of. And so uh, the reason that I think that's an interesting thing to reflect on in light of sort of the question in front of us today is because, of course, the heartbeat of the Reform movement um, was actually, at its best anyway, a desire to see the Scripture return to its rightful authoritative place in the life of the Church, and uh, namely into your hands. So that the gift of the Reformation, again, at its best, would be that you would know and have access to and be able to read your Bibles, that you would have a voice with respect to what the Spirit might be saying through the Bible to you as a priesthood of all believers, and that that mattered for our life together. That um, idea, that conviction, took many different shapes and forms. But for those who really did want to see reform in the church, not to divide, not to separate, but truly to um, have a renewed commitment to the scripture that we would know and that that scripture would shape our life together, it did in fact give rise to this tradition. So I want us to like kind of keep that um, in front of us. There are people who quite literally bled and died so that you could read your Bible, so that you could have one. And I say that not to like, you know, lay a heavy, or for condemnation, or for guilts, or oughts, or shoulds. It's just like important to remember, maybe firstly because why, you know? Why did it matter to them so much? Apparently how we read the Bible really does matter. It actually will in fact shape our life together, y'all, not just in the church and the way that we worship, but I would submit to you that how we regard scripture, the role that it plays, the Word of God, capital W, in our life really does matter in the way that you live, more maybe than you realize or think that it does. So how? How do we read the Bible? In light of this text um, in Matthew 22, last week we looked together about the story where Jesus engages, um, or rather <laughs> he suffers through, uh, another test by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The religious authorities have come for Jesus. They're trying to test his mettle, see what kind of leader he really is. And so he um, apparently now, we're back to the Pharisees. The Sadducees have had their moment, and now the Pharisees want to take, take a shot, you know? And so they come to Jesus with a question. What is the greatest commandment? 
And here's just the first thing that I would like to note about just like we get one verse in and already there's something I want to make sure that I see myself and that we all see together, which is this. And we really kind of only can have this perspective, of course, in hindsight because we know who Jesus is in a way that the Pharisees maybe could not have and certainly did not know who he was. But here they are, these religious authorities, these experts of Scripture, experts in the law, have come to Jesus in order to test him in order to test his authority, to judge his understanding of the Bible. And I would just like the irony of that fact to settle among us for a moment. Jesus, of course, himself being very God, the Word of God, actually, capital W, made flesh, Lagos, the mind and heart, the God-breathed Word, human flesh. Here he stands with the Pharisees, And yet because the Pharisees cannot recognize him as who he is, as that, they bring their interpretations, their knowledge, their understanding, their presuppositions, their paradigms, their view of the Bible to Jesus in front of him in order to test him according to what they think they already know. So Jesus has the choice to give an answer to the question, and then they're going to judge whether or not this is right authority, whether or not he has authority or should be listened to. (sighs) Tough. And the reason I think that that's something that we should all pay attention to is because I don't think the Pharisees were probably the last people to have ever done this. It's probably helpful for all of us to remember that if we are going to first answer the question, how do we read the Bible? we should be really clear about where the authority lies, which is, of course, firstly and ultimately in Jesus himself. He is the Word of God, capital W. And it is because of him, through him and by him, in order that we might know him, that we have our Bibles. But if what was true for the Pharisees also must be true for me, that if I am going to come to the Bible, I probably ought to bring all of my pre-existing knowledge, my presuppositions, my paradigms, my interpretations, my understanding, and put them squarely at the feet of Jesus. Yeah. Submitted to his authority so that he can tell me what is right, not the other way around. One of... Um, You know, it's hard to say, actually, if it was a failure or just sort of like a lamentable inevitability. I think it was the thing that the Catholic Church feared would happen with the Reformation is this. Um, Anybody remember uh, the great sort of rally cry of the Reformation? Again, I guarantee you a Presbyterian among us will know it. Sola Scriptura. Only Scripture. The sort of rally cry, truly, a maxim among the Reformers. And here's the thing about that. Um, They were right, of course, to be advocating for. Uh, We need to be submitted, all of us, Pope included, to the authority of Scripture. But here's what sort of happened in a kind of like lamentable and regrettable way. We have to at least check ourselves as Protestants who've come out of this Reformation that what we cannot be saying, of course, is that the Pope no longer has the right or authority to interpret Scripture. He can't be trusted, but of course the rest of us can be. Yeah? Because sola scriptura, only scripture, will depend on who, of course, is holding it and reading it and interpreting it. And, of course, everyone 
is. So when we talk about the authority of Scripture that it has, the question, of course, rightly is, well, whose authority do you mean? Because I have rightly, um, over time, begun to sort of like try to, you know, as I've been asked the question before by many people, discern what is it you're really asking? Are you really asking me, do I believe in, am I willing to submit to the authority that Scripture has over my life? Well, because if that's the question, yes and amen. If what you're asking, though, is that I would check my own convictions, my own questions, my own reservations at the door and submit to your authority, maybe not. At least not without question, not without the opportunity to push back. <sighs> Which is what makes me a Protestant, you see. So the question can't be, at least only by itself, again, without interpretation. We say we believe in the authority of Scripture. Well, whose authority is it really? So I'm going to submit to you that that authority ultimately must firstly be Jesus, the Lord himself. It's his authority. Sadly, of course, he's not here to tell us in the way we wish that he was always, as clearly as we wish he would be, what it means, what, it's, what is right, what should we do. I can't tell you the number of times I've wished, I've quoted Isaiah to him many times. He's heard me say it. Even now, he's like, oh, here she goes again. Run to the heavens, Lord, and come down. Tell us, Lord Jesus, what you'd have us to do. We are not getting it. We are too confused. Help us know. But alas, here we are, just, you know, us and the Holy Ghost, one another, trying to figure things out. And I suspect that's not an accident. It's not a mistake. I think it's exactly the way that the Lord wants it to be. Just us and the Holy Ghost. The Lord Jesus said, after all, to those gathered around him, it's good that I go away. Why? Are you sure that it's good? It's good that I go away. Why? Why did he say it's good? Because if I go away, who comes? The Comforter, Paraclete, the Holy Spirit, he comes. And then I guess you'll have to listen to one another and pray. Yeah. So if we assume, of course, then, okay, authority. The Bible's authority is the authority of Jesus. And the authority of Jesus we know and submit to by virtue of the Holy Spirit. How, though, do we discern right and good authority? How do we discern right and good interpretations? This is a faithful question, y'all. Um, I would commend to you, if you've never read it, um, the bishop, uh, N.T. Wright, he's an Anglican bishop in the Church of England, a uh, world-renowned Bible scholar, and also a pastor um, and an Anglican priest. Um, so, you know, kind of my hero of my heart. I'll just go out and say it. I'm not neutral. Big, big fan. Um, and I, he has a number of really wonderful things to say, but his essay, which became later a book entitled um, The Authority of Scripture, or How Can Scripture Be Authoritative?, in this essay, which I will not <laughs> recount to you in full, although I'm tempted because it's better than anything I have to say, but he makes the claim in short that the authority of the Bible is Jesus' authority and that this authority takes a particular kind of shape. It's different from the rest of the world's authority. 
There's something uniquely and particularly Christian about the kind of authority that Jesus exercises, the kind of authority that God exercises throughout the Bible. And that is the authority he would say to create, to correct, to liberate, to love and redeem. You can know the exercise of God's authority if it is aimed in the direction of those things. Does this authority exercise power with the intent and with the ability? Does it produce actually love and liberation? Does it create? Do things flourish as a result of the exercise of this authority? Does it correct? Meaning it has authority to correct. Does it liberate? Does it love? Does it redeem? These are the kinds of questions that we're meant not just to ask of authority in general, but specifically of the kinds of authority that gets wielded through Scripture and maybe of our interpretations of it. Do these interpretations or our understanding or the way that we use and wield the Bible, does it produce in us the kind of authority that Jesus had? Does it make us people who create, who want to see things flourish, Does it make us people who aren't afraid to correct? Because if you have both of those things at the same time, if you are a person whose heart and life is built and aimed towards liberation, and you are courageous enough to correct, you have a sense of what what is right and wrong, man, that is such a powerful thing in the life of a person. One without the other, though, lopsided, off balance, and sometimes dangerous. So how do we read our Bible? Firstly, we read it with the assumption that it is authoritative. I'm submitted to this Bible because I'm submitted to Jesus. I'm also submitted to faithful people's interpretation of this Bible. But that authority belongs to Jesus, and I can also know that that authority is meant to be aimed in the exercise or known by the exercise of love, liberty, creation, redemption. Do our, does our reading of Scripture result in those things? Matthew 22. The Pharisees asked Jesus, What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Here's what I think is pretty rad about that, is that there are over 600 commandments in the Hebrew Bible. And Jesus, without hesitation, just tells them, there may be 600, but there's a first and most important one, and then right behind it, there's a number two. Exercising authority that he already knew that he had. Um, Those of you who were here a couple weeks ago, um, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy. This is the great Shema in Hebrew, the prayer that to this day, for thousands of years, Jews have been praying every morning and every evening. Hear, O Israel, Shema in Hebrew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Um, I've been hearing my whole life, well-intentioned people say this. Um, oh, all that Bible interpretation stuff just stresses me out. I don't even care what people think and all of their opinions. All I know to do is just love God and love people. Have you heard this before? We made t-shirts with it. Someone thought it was so clever that they would just put it on t-shirts and we 
just sold millions of them. Love God, love people. Because something intuitively goes, yeah. I mean, that is what Jesus said to do. Ironically, (laughs) that is scripturally accurate. Love God and love people. That is what Jesus said to do. Here's the trouble, though, you all, and you know this as well as I do. If only it were that simple. Do you know what I mean? I wish to God, honestly, that Jesus had said something else. Do you know what the first and greatest commandment is? (sighs) That you would tithe 10%. That's it. All of the law and prophets summed up and you tithing 10%. All of the law and prophet hangs on, as would have been the case probably for me growing up, um, in just you being a virgin when you get married. All of the law and prophets. Because those things, man, got it. Give me a list, give me a rule, Derek Webb would say. Give me a new law. We love those. Because I can keep all the laws, keep the list and all the rules, and my loves be left alone. Just by nature to love as I will and love what I want. Because isn't it hard to love something that you don't sort of naturally love? Who can do that? And how? Love your neighbor. Okay, let's put God over here for a second who we think is harder to love because we can't see him and hear him. Actually, your neighbor, I would submit to you, is far more problematic by virtue of the fact that you can, in fact, hear and see them. That is the issue, actually, to loving your neighbor as yourself. So the very thing that we lament over here, I would love God, you see, but I can't see him or hear him. Okay, well, here's your neighbor then. Give that a shot. Yeah, you're right, never mind. God it is. Of your neighbor as yourself. How? Is it just me? And let me say this very clearly to those of you in the room who when we sing a song like our affection, our devotion on the feet of Jesus and you feel stuck or like you cannot even get the words out of your mouth All your life, you've been hearing people like me tell you to love God. You know, just love him. Just love him. And the rest of it will take care of itself. And it panics you because you don't know what it means and you don't know how to will yourself to love what you don't by nature really love. Let me just reassure you with this. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. The brain that you have, the body that you have, the spirit that you have is not a liability to the God who made you. He knows you and loves you. And by nature, you cannot muster up or on your own, some of us anyway, the ability to love that which we cannot see and hear. He knows this already. He remembers that we are flesh, the psalmist says. In his mercy, he does. Ahava, in Hebrew, is the word for love. And mercifully, That word includes both affection and action. They are necessarily tethered together, not like do both of them. But in doing the action, the affection comes. Do you see what I'm saying? Not like affection plus action. These two things are held together in one command, to love, which is both necessarily action and affection. And for someone who is as broken-hearted as I am, 
that is very good news because there's hope for me then. What that means is my actions could lead my affections. My affections could change, thanks be to God, according to his grace and his mercy. And yours, friends, do need to change. I was born, I will tell you, honestly and humbly, with a natural affection for Jesus, I was. But the rest of you are trouble for me. I am selfish by nature. I don't naturally love most of the things that Jesus seemed to so innately. Him, who I'm always a little suspicious, I see too much of myself in. I love by nature, or at least it's a grace and a gift. The rest of it, though, the church has had to help me train me and lead me, and I have, by God's grace, watched my affections change. I can say because of who Jesus is, I don't have to try to love you anymore. And you can't really know what a mercy that is until you have felt it shift in your own heart. Jesus has liberated me to love in the way that he loves And that is a choice that I have had to make to submit myself to his authority over and over and over again in the things that I do so that my affections change. And that is a grace extended to every single one of us, no matter how you were born or the natural state of your affections. James K.A. Smith wrote a book, first wrote a book called Desiring the Kingdom, And it was too philosophical and heady and dense. And so he wrote another book so he could make money called You Are What You Love. And you should read that one. (laughs) Um, In this book, he has an incredible quote, and I'm going to read it uh, to you. You are what you love. He says this. It is crucial for us to recognize that our ultimate loves, longings, desires, and cravings are learned. Our culture would very much love for you to believe that you just are who you are and our culture is neutral with respect to what you love. Don't believe it. They make money off what you love and what I love. They need us to love certain things. I don't even know who they is. Do you know what I mean? I don't know who they is. I just know they's they. Somebody wants me to love specific things. And I can no longer believe that I just woke up loving certain things, like all the things that indulge my flesh, and actually none of the things that serve you better. Suspicious. And that is because, he says, love is a habit. Our hearts are calibrated through imitating exemplars and being immersed in practices that over time Listen to this, index our heart to a certain end. You have a compass situated in the center of you, and the needle is moving. That means that the formation of my loves and desires can be happening under the hood of consciousness. I might be learning to love a telos, an end, that I'm not even aware of, and that nonetheless governs my life in unconscious ways. 
He will go on throughout this book to make the claim that we are actually all of us liturgical beings. Liturgy is not just something done inside the church. Um, Your football stadium has a liturgy. The shopping mall has a liturgy, he will say. Your home, the TV shows that you watch, the daily habits, the things that you engage in have a liturgy, which means they have an aim. They are, in fact, cultivating your longings, your desires. They are habituating you to love certain things. Think about it in terms of a palate if you're a food person. You train a palate. It's the only reason any of us really like beer. I worked really hard at it for a long time. Oh, it's true. And now here we are. Now, I just love it. Can't tell you why I do. I just do. It's nature, I guess. Mm, Is it? So here's the the gift and the mercy for us today. I think, I want you to hear me say this. I read my Bible now because I believe that Jesus is liberating my heart to love what he loves. In unconscious ways, as many and as oftentimes as conscious ways. The Lord God Almighty is attempting to set your heart free from the sin of self and pride, ego and apathy and despair and fear to liberate you to love. And for that, you need a practice, a habit, something you do not just with regularity, but often every day. There are 12 hours in which you are actively awake and doing things. I'm going to submit this is true for every person in this room, at least 12. That's 720 minutes. A tenth of that, speaking of tithing, would be 72 And if you think that I'm headed in the direction you suspect I'm headed in, you're right. If you were to tie the tenth of your waking hours to God, it'd be 72 minutes. God, have mercy on us and help us. How would we ever give 72 minutes a day to the Lord to be habituated and practiced? I don't know. Maybe maybe we can't. I would start with what you can know. And then I would pray, and I would read, and I would say to God, Liberate my heart and my schedule to love what you love, Lord Jesus. As if my life and our lives depended on it. In Jesus' name, amen.